Valentine's Day is in a couple days. For some of you, that's very exciting. For some of you, that's very stressful. For some of you, that's very depressing. <laughs> and uh, I want to ask you guys the question, do you believe in love at first sight? Some of you say yes, because that is the only way I will have a date on Tuesday. Um, but I asked this question to my students when I was a teacher, because we were reading Romeo and Juliet. It was kind of a good pre-reading activity, so we had a discussion. It was kind of a debate, actually. Because there are those who believed in love at first sight and those who didn't. And it was really interesting, because those who did believe in love at first sight, I, always asked them, I would ask them, what is love? To you. And they would say, you know, love is like the feel, this feeling that just comes over you when you see a person and you just cross the room and you just like pow, you know, and you just overcome. And you could spend, you could just like spend days staring into their eyes. And then I asked the other side of the room, I said, well, what about you? You know, what is love to you? And, and they said, well, no, that's a bunch of hooey. That's infatuation, right? When you love somebody, it means that you, you know, you're loyal to them and you're faithful to them and you stay committed to them for the rest of your life. And it was such an interesting dichotomy that they either thought love was this emotional thing about your feelings or it was a matter of your decisions and your commitments. And they asked me, being the all-knowing teacher, I said, Mr. Lai, what do you think? And I said, you know, I think you're both right. Because if you're committed something to, to your whole life, but you're committed grudgingly, you're like, ah, I'm not really into this thing. I'm just here because I have to be. That's not love. But at the same time, how many of you guys have ever seen somebody cross the room and say, pow, I, I, I could stare at that forever. And then after you spend a couple minutes with them, you're like, I don't want to spend another minute with you. And so love is, is both. It's both the emotion and the feeling. I said, and it's the decision and the commitment. It, it can happen in a moment. You can, I believe you can fall in love. Maybe not at first sight, but, but pretty quickly. But, but true love lasts. Um, I have often told in this church the story of me and Elaine's relationship. And those of you who've been around for a long time have heard it a million times. Uh, I'm sorry, today it's going to be a million and one. <laughs> but I, because I realize that actually some of you guys who haven't been around as long have not heard this story before. And so I'm going to tell it again uh, because it serves the purposes of our message today. Um, but... Um, Elaine and I met the summer before I started college. I was going to Berkeley where she was already studying. We met at a retreat. And the first months that we knew each other from that retreat and the first months of school, we spent a lot of time together. And there was some really good chemistry. Like, we liked being around each other. We just got along. You know, we laughed when we were together. We, we believed in the same things. It was fun to be with her. And so I was with her a lot. Like, a lot. You know, as much as I could. Um, then, a couple months into it, in about October, after a fellowship, she asked me to come and talk to her outside alone, and I said, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and what she told me that night outside of our fellowship, she said, you know, Paul, I, I think that I'm in a stage of my life right now where God wants to do some things in my life, and I don't think I'm really ready for any kind of relationship or anything resembling it, so I just kind of wanted you to know that. And it, that made me stand at attention. I mean, that, it's the kind of thing that you expect that if somebody hears it, they, they don't like hearing it. But I loved hearing that. I loved hearing that she wanted to dedicate herself to, to God and to what God was doing in her life. So I backed off. I mean, I really backed off, right? I mean, we, we went to the same fellowship, but I didn't talk to her. I didn't write to her. Even when we were in the same room, I intentionally tried to be on the other side of the room as, as her. We like avoided eye contact because I just didn't want to make my sister stumble. Right? And, and in fact, it was really only three months later when she actually came up to me and said, 
Paul, I think it's okay if we talk. <laughs> you don't have to hide from me. And I was like, okay, cool, cool. I just want to respect you know, what God is doing with you. And very, very, very slowly, at a glacial pace, we got to know each other a little bit better. And, and not through me asking her out on dates or flirting with her or whatever. It's just in the context of our fellowship and in, in hanging out with common friends and seeing one another um, in life. And, and, and really it was only the summer of that school, uh, right, the, right before the summer of that school year. This is a whole school year had gone by with this very slow watching each other from a distance. Only after the summer before I asked her, before we went on summer break, because I felt like it was okay to ask her this. I said, is it okay if I write to you over the summer? So I wrote to her that summer. Not emails. Snail mail. And this is not because we're so old that we didn't have email, okay? I know some of you youth are thinking that. But I wrote letters to her, put a stamp on it, put it in the mail. I would wait three days for her to get it and then wait three more days before she'd write back to me. All summer long, we wrote to each other. And even, uh, you know, we didn't actually start going out officially until a year, more than a year after we'd had that talk. And when we started going out, you know, uh, we set all these these boundaries, these guidelines for ourselves, that we would spend time with each other only so much. Um, we set all kinds of physical boundaries. Elaine and I didn't kiss until two and a half years into our relationship. And, um, and you know, when you hear that, you may be thinking, wow, Paul, that sounds pretty boring. <laughs> sounds like very passionless. But it wasn't. I mean, I, I got to tell you, even that year that we didn't talk to each other, I'd walk around the city in Berkeley, heading to class, and around every corner, it seemed, I would just anticipate seeing her. And, you know, those moments when, I, when she actually did happen to be right there, I would avoid eye contact, but my heart would be beating, like, so fast, you know? Uh, and, and even after we started dating, I just, I can't tell you what I felt. Just every time I, I thought about the fact that I was with this amazing, beautiful, godly girl that I was totally falling for. In fact, last week when we were at the retreat, Elaine and I didn't really fully realize this until we got there and turned the corner and saw the building. But you know, the, um, the, the, not the dorms that we stayed in, but the ones that were across from the, the bigger sanctuary that we weren't in? We actually had a retreat there when we were in college. And I talked all, my bro- all the brothers, the brothers were staying in the cabins we stayed at. I talked all the brothers into going to serenade the sisters, just to bless them. So we came out in the middle of the night, and, we all, and I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We all sang, when the night has come, you know, and we sang Stand By Me in front of their dorm, and they all came out like, what's going on? And then halfway through it, I ran up to Elaine, and I started singing to her as the, all the guys sang, and uh, she was embarrassed. <laughs> but, you know, like, I I, there's all kinds of like rules and, and we'd set all these boundaries and guidelines but, but you know what I would describe our relationship as in those years that we were dating I would describe it as disciplined passion and it really wasn't because I'm such a great man or such a great Christian it was totally God's intervention because I'm telling you if we had trusted our own instincts I think we would have just wanted to rush things we both have that, that kind of instinct but God set some boundaries for us and, and so when I, when I married her, after four and a half years dating, I stood at the altar with a, a, a woman that I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. A woman that I had never been to bed with, but that I knew that I would want to be in bed with her for the rest. <laughs> that sounds weird. <laughs> Go to bed with her every night for the rest of my life. And I thank God for that. 
But you know, I, I love telling that story because of God's grace in us, but, but I also love telling that story now, now that we've been married for seven years, now that we're a year into having a baby. Because, you know, since then, after we got married, especially the last three or four years, I don't know if disciplined passion is the best way to describe it. You know, when you get married, for those of you who aren't, you just let it all go, right? There's really nothing to hide anymore. She's seen my love handles and, 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 and smelled all my smells, and really there's nothing absolutely that I can uh, hide from her anymore. She knows me through and through, and it would be so easy for her to just get sick of me and, and all the ways that I'm a, a rotten husband. And, and I have to admit, it, it would be po- very possible for me to let my eyes wander but, you know, there are certain things that, since we've been married, um, God again and again has brought good advice into our lives about how to structure our relationship. Um, for example, um, we used to have a rule that we would not let the sun set on our anger. And so we fight. We fought and we do fight, and it gets intense. But the rule that we got from Scripture was that we would not go to bed angry at each other. Even if we didn't solve our problems, even if we were still felt unsettled, we would, um, we would say that we loved each other. Hi, I love you, honey. <laughs> we would say that we loved each other before we went to sleep. And that way we would never let bitterness fester. Um, a couple years back, as a cheap gift, I set up a blog where we would write to each other. And so for a while, every day, we would just, you know, we talked all the time, but, but it would just be a place for us to, if we didn't have a chance to express our inner thoughts and concerns. And now that we have Eden, we don't have a lot of time to blog, but we have a date night once a week. And whenever I break that date night, it really, it really exacts a cost on our relationship. And we have a family business night where we try to take care of all the stuff we do as a family. And so... Whereas our dating life was, I think, a disciplined passion, I would say that the things that we do now as a married couple are are passionate disciplines. The things that we do because we genuinely love each other and we know that these commitments that we make help make it possible for us to, to only fall in love each other, fall in love with each other more. I'm sorry, I'm extremely distracted by my beautiful family right now. <laughs> to, to fall in love with each other more. Uh, I want to talk about that. And the title of my message today is Love Equals Discipline Plus Passion. It's a very simple formula. By the end of it, we will have this memorized. But I think it's a very essential truth. And the essential truth is that the way that God loves us is this interdependent combination of, 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 of feeling, of emotion, of passion, and of commitment, of boundaries, of discipline. Okay? And that... For us to love Him in return requires the same kind of love. Um, one of our ministry goals this year is to focus on holistic discipleship. All right? And what we mean by holistic discipleship is that we want to follow Jesus with all of our lives. This is the image on Jeremy Lin's Twitter account, by the way. It's Jesus saying to somebody, no, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. <laughs> um, and that's what Jesus says. He says, I want you to follow me. And when I want you to follow me, I want you to follow me with your whole life. And you can't follow something with your whole life unless you are consumed with love and with passion for it. And yet when we say discipleship, there is in the middle of that word, which I spelled wrong, oh my gosh, <laughs> there is in the middle of that word the word disciple, which looks like the word discipline. Because there's an aspect of following Jesus that is absolutely total passion and total emotion and you want to give your all to Him, but it requires a kind of discipline to follow Him. 
Alright? And so today you can grab Bibles because we're going to open up to the passages that if you've been reading with our gospel on every page, you know we've been in the book of Exodus and we've been in, in Matthew. And we're two, two parts of the Bible that are among the most important parts of the story of Scripture. Alright? And if you're not reading with us, again, I just want to make a pitch. Uh, you're missing out because in small groups and in young disciples we're talking about it. And in individual lives I'm hearing about people being touched by, by God's Word speaking to them. And we're at a really exciting part right now. So it's a good time to join on. Okay? But I want to show in those passages the way that God's love is passion plus discipline. Okay? And, and what's happening in this week's readings? What's happening in this week's readings? Anybody know? What's going on in Exodus? What did you say? Apartheid? No. <laughs> What's happening in Exodus? Hmm. It's not a test, guys. It's okay. I'm not here to judge you. Um, we're about the time when we go from narrative to law. Right? You guys have read how God led Moses to lead his people out of slavery from Egypt and, and, and into the wilderness where they're preparing to enter the promised land. And as they've left slavery, God begins to give his law. Okay? In fact, the pivotal part, the place you want to look is Exodus 19. Because when you go to Exodus 20, you find the Ten Commandments. And after the Ten Commandments, all kinds of other aspects of God's law. But in Exodus 19, it's, it's this important thing where God is setting up the Ten Commandments and where He gives the Ten Commandments. All right? And that's really important. You know, they talk, uh, sometimes you hear in the news about uh, Christians making a fuss because there used to be Ten Commandments posted in a courthouse or in a school and now they're taking it down. Now, I don't want to weigh in on that argument so much, but I do think it's weird for us to insist on the Ten Commandments being posted in places where we don't tell the story that goes with the Ten Commandments. Because me coming from a non-Christian family and not growing up as a Christian, when I see the Ten Commandments, it looks like a list of ten random laws. But it's not a list of ten random laws. Because there in Exodus 19, God says, you will follow this law that I am giving to you because you are my chosen people. And as my chosen people, you will live this way. And because you live this way, the world will know what I am like. But without the context of that story, it's so hard to know what all that means, right? But in that, in that passage, in that moment between when God is taking them out of Egypt and He's saying, I'm making you my very own people. And when He's giving His law, you can see so vividly God's burning love as passion and as discipline. Turn to it now in Exodus 19. I will too. Okay? And what I want you to notice is I want you to notice the ways that God expresses passion. Now, in this whole chapter, there is not once the word love, but there certainly is the evidence of love. Alright? I'm going to say that passion, and this isn't comprehensive or definitive or whatever, but this is just what I find here. I'm going to say that passion consists of a couple things. It can, consists of identification with something. You know when you're passionate about something, it's something that you take into yourself, right? You love cars, you're a car guy, right? You love um, basketball, you're a basketball guy. You start to identify with it. And here we see God identifying with His people. In verse 3, says that you want, I want you to tell the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel, you saw what I did in Egypt, I brought you out of slavery, I, I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then he calls them in the next verse. Actually, next verse after that. 
No, the next verse. <laughs> Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Right? God identifies himself with Israel. And not only does he identify with them, but in identifying with them, he, he loves them so much that he wants to give himself to them. It's a self-giving thing. When you're passionate about something, you don't care how many hours, you could just while away a whole day lost in the thing that you're in love with, whether it's a, a beautiful woman or a great cup of wine. I don't know, I don't drink wine. <laughs> Whatever it is that you're passionate about. And in the same way, God sort of gets lost, commits himself to giving himself to his people. Right? You can see, he says, uh, I am going to come to you. He reveals himself to his people, right? And, and it's a, it, it, passion is something that is, that is all-consuming. That God, it is part of his nature to be love. As John says, God is love. And as it says in Hebrews, God is, for he is an, an all-consuming fire. Okay? And so, the way that he loves us and the way that he is in his holiness and in his love is all-consuming. In fact, it's this fire that burns so powerfully that when he appears to his people at Mount Sinai, he says, I'm going to come to you in a cloud. But we'll get to that in a second. Okay. If you've been reading, you know that in Matthew, we're turning to the part of the story, and this is the first of the four Gospels that we're going through. We're going to encounter the story three more times this year, but we're turning to the part of the story where Jesus starts to approach the cross. You want to talk about passion. There's a reason why we call that part the passion narrative. Why Mel Gibson called the movie The Passion of the Christ. Right? Because there you see that as he approaches the cross, more and more Jesus starts to make it clear who he's identifying with. Okay? I'm not here for those who think they are righteous. I'm not here for those who want um, some kind of religious power or authority. I'm here for the weak and the broken and the downtrodden, for the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. He identifies with us sinners. And then he says that not only am I yours and you are mine, but I'm going to give myself for you. That's the essence of the cross. It is an all-consuming love for which he gives everything. Right? And so we see here a side of this, that, uh, of, of God's love for us at Mount Sinai, right? At, um, at the cross, where God's love is passion. And yet, that passion is also combined with discipline, the kind of discipline. And what I mean by discipline is a kind of commitment. When God says to Israel, you're my people, He says, he, he covenants with them. You see in verse 4 that He's making a covenant, sorry, of Exodus 19. He's making a covenant with them, and that means a commitment to them, a promise to them that will not hold or change. And that, that commitment is a very special commitment. He says, you are my chosen people. Okay? And what's so interesting about this is that He says, my presence didn't come on a mountain, but I don't want you, don't come near the mountain. There's a big sign. 500 feet away, three miles from the, from the mountain that says, stop here, don't get any closer, all right, because as soon as you step past this line, your pants will burn to shreds, you will be naked, <laughs> all right, and my glory will overwhelm you, you step within 400 feet and the skin will blow off of your bones, all right, because his glory is so great that you cannot fully stand in his presence and still live. And so he sets these boundaries. And he gives these laws and these commands that when the priests enter my holy place, this is how you have to ready yourself. 
Okay? And it's weird to think about God having boundaries because His love is, as, I, as we talked about at our staff meeting recently, this untamable burning fire that cannot be contained. God can't be put in a box. But He does put structures around His love. And He does that so that we who cannot grasp or fathom or imagine His greatness can approach Him and understand Him. Okay? God understands that love requires boundaries. It requires structures. And it requires time. And so the way that God loves us involves a burning heart of passion, but it also involves discipline. And that's why after Exodus 19, there's Exodus 20. That's why God gives His people commands. If you read the Ten Commandments and you really understand them, hi. There is no way that you could think that God doesn't require our total love. He says, you will worship no other gods before me. Why? Because I am a jealous God. I'm jealous for you. When you love other things, it breaks my heart. But then he says all these things. Because I'm a jealous God, because you're my people, this is how you shall live. Discipline. Structure. Right? And... And see, God loves us this way and He models for us how we are to love Him and how we are to love each other. And, and I think that's what God was teaching me in our relationship, my relationship with Elaine. I always feel like my relationship with Elaine was a, a learning ground for me to learn about how to love in every area of my life. And I haven't learned this lesson perfectly. But I understand that love requires your heart. But it also requires your head. Love requires your feeling. It also requires your commitment. Okay? And so, I want to put this to you. That there's two kinds of people among you. Okay? Some of you guys know how to love with, your, with, with passion. But you don't understand the need for discipline. And some of you guys have lots of discipline. But you need passion. So let me speak to that group first. I think you know when you love with discipline but without passion when your faith is an empty religion. And I think the symptoms of this problem is that you are like the older brother of the prodigal son. Right? You know, remember that story. The prodigal son returns and the father rejoices. The prodigal son's older brother stands and says, Hey, how come I don't get the fattened calf? Right? You know it because you find in yourself, when you're honest with yourself, a kind of judgmentalism. You look at other people and you say, that's not fair. How come I'm working so hard and yet God blesses them? Sometimes you find this, that you have a certain bitterness that grows around you. I know that's true for me. And sometimes it's as simple as... Uh, you can't remember the last time you really talked to God. You can remember um, talking about God. In fact, you may be teaching Sunday school. You may be um, talking, you may be leading Bible study. You may talk to your friends or your family about God. But you can't remember the last time you really had a heartfelt conversation between your human heart and God. Right? Um, Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan pastor. If you guys remember Jonathan Edwards, he's the one who preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Very famous sermon. And if you guys remember the Puritans, they were people who just 
dedicated to proving their commitment to God. And Jonathan Edwards was the ultimate Puritan. I mean, this guy was like incredible. Just an incredible brain for God. He studied all kinds of theology, new theology, top to bottom. Okay? And, and not only that, he studied science. And he studied science because he believed that every part of nature would reflect God. So he made a catalog of insects. In fact, this guy was so committed to God that he wrote down everything that he ate. He kept a journal of everything that he ate and then he wrote down what effect that had on his mind and his body because he wanted to be at his utmost alertness at all times for the maximum numbers, number of hours a day so he could study theology. I mean, you want to talk about a guy who's disciplined. Nobody is disciplined like Jonathan Edwards. But this is what he had to say in a famous thing that he wrote regarding, entitled, Regarding the Religious Affections. He says that a person who has knowledge of doctrine and theology only without religious affection, affection, that's the stuff that you feel for the toy that you love when you're a kid. That's the stuff that you feel for your mommy. When you're, when you're crying out for her, when you're wounded, that's the, the feeling that you feel about that, that guy, that girl that you've fallen in love with. But religious affection has never engaged in true religion. Nothing is more apparent than this. Our religion takes root within us only as deep as our attractions, uh, sorry, affections attract it. It's been said before that the distance between heaven and hell is 12 inches. The distance from your heart to your head. If all the stuff that we talk about and do here at church only lives up here and you've never let it move you to a point of tears or of laughter or of joy, then you are missing something essential in your faith, in your relationship with God. And so Jonathan Edwards talks about cultivating religious affections, holy affections. And it's so important that you understand that this is where God wants to operate so that it's not just by works, right? If you read in Matthew, Jesus talks to the Pharisees that you guys are so concerned about your outward appearance. You need to clean the inside of the cup. And when you clean the inside of the cup, the outside will be clean too. Look, some of us are working really hard to be Christians. But in spite of how hard we're working to be Christians, let's face it, at the end of the day, we're still addicted. Addicted to food. Addicted to sex. Addicted to materialism. And you know what? I, I read this book that Dr. Ekman sold us <laughs> last weekend at the retreat. And I love the main point of this book. It's called Sex, Food, and God, which I, I, I bought because I'm very interested in the latter two of these things, <laughs> particularly food. Um, and I wanted to understand what he's... And, and you know what, what's really profound that he says in this book is he says that, look, you want sex, you want food. That's an innate desire that God has given to you. If you are dealing with addictions to those things, you're not going to overcome it by stopping loving sex and food. Because guess what? We're made to want those things. You're going to overcome those addictions to the ways that those are manifested in the wrong ways when you realize that your love for God because of God's love for you is so much greater than any of those things. Don't try to fall out of love with food because it's too good. Fall in love with God who is so much better and realize that he says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's so true. I've been reflecting on Elaine, man. I eat too much and I eat because I feel. <laughs> I eat because I'm tired. I eat because I'm energized. I eat because I'm sad. I eat because I'm happy. You know, it's like every emotion is connected with food for me. And if I can wrap my heart around my satisfaction with God, then I won't, 
I won't turn to those, those things. Right? And so, sometimes we get mixed up. We think that the way out of things in our lives is to change, uh, change our outward actions. God wants to change the desires of our hearts to love Him and His ways more. Okay? Now, I think some of you guys for that, some of you guys needed to hear that because you're, you're too wrapped up in, the, in your works. Others of you guys have been trying. Been trying to cultivate a passion for God. And you can't find it. You read the Bible, you know it all before. You try to pray, can't really find anything in it. Well, let me suggest another way that passion for God can be found, can play out. There's a, a pastor named Will Campbell. This is an imaginary story that he imagines. He tells this imaginary story that there's a preacher, an evangelist. And he's preaching at a church and he says to everybody, the time has come for you to give your life to Jesus. Will you do that now? And you know, as these occasions are supposed to go, people start streaming down the aisles, you know, to, to give their life to Jesus. And he says, stop, 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 stop. Wait, wait, wait. I didn't tell you to give your life to me. I said to go and give your life to Jesus. Go and give your life to Jesus. And so everybody goes, oh, okay. <laughs> they turn around, they walk out the door, and they get in their cars, and they drive away. And he says to everybody who's left, what about you who, who are still here? Will you give your life to Jesus? And they say, okay. And they all walk out of the church. And they get in their cars. All of a sudden, a couple hours later, the phone rings at the police station. It's the guy, it's the person who runs the old folks' home. And he says, please send some, some, some officers down here. We got this crazy riot going on outside. There's a whole bunch of people banging on the door saying, we want to see Jesus. We want to come here to give our lives to Jesus. And I keep telling them, Jesus ain't here. We just got a bunch of senile old folks who are lonely and waiting to die. And they say, we want to see Jesus. Let us in so we can be with Jesus. And he's saying, there's no Jesus here. And another call comes at the police station. And it's the warden at the prison. And they say, well, you guys got to send some troops. We need some reinforcements down here. Because everybody's banging on the prison door saying, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And I, and I keep telling them, all we have here is murderers and thieves and rapists. And, and they just keep going. Let us in because we want to give our lives to Jesus. And then the AIDS hospital calls. And then... And you can just hear Jesus saying in Matthew 25, whatever you did to the least of these... He did unto me. And for some of you guys, you've been trying to be passionate about God, but you don't realize that He wants you to join Him in His passion for others. And it's actually that, that there's a key in your life that needs to be unlocked. The, 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 heart of, the heart of who you are. And it needs to be unlocked by you learning to love others in Jesus' name. Okay. And for you... You need to take that challenge seriously that Jesus says. Now, for some of us, we, we, we like Matthew 25 a lot. And so we've been working really hard. We've been working our butts off for Jesus. And we're serving people all the time. We're trying to do good at home and at work and at church and in society because that's where Jesus is. And perhaps, if you're like me, you became a teacher, if you are me, <laughs> you became a teacher so that you could love the 30 Jesuses in your classroom. And you started serving the church so you could love the 50 Jesuses at church. And you started to raise a family and you tried to raise a tiny baby Jesus <laughs> and change baby Jesus' diapers and never get mad at baby Jesus. And you're tired. 
and you find that you're doing stuff all the time. And actually, when you think on it, maybe you're plenty disciplined. Uh, uh, sorry, maybe you, you're plenty passionate, but somehow your love has grown cold. And I'm going to suggest that maybe you need discipline. And maybe you're thinking, discipline is not the word I wanted to hear. But let me put it this way. If you have passion, but not discipline, you have flame out death. <laughs> you will flame out. Okay? And you know this is your problem if, like me, your spiritual life is just a constant up and down. It's very conditional. It's dependent. When Dean preaches a message, you're, on, you're flying high with God. And when you go to work, it's all a mess. Okay? When you have good times, you love God. When you have bad times, you forgot about Him. Or the other way around. When you have bad times, you turn to God. When you have good times, nah, don't need Him. Right? And just the way that God teaches us to love our spouses by growing a passion that comes from the disciplines of caring for each other, God wants to do the same with your relationship with Him. Okay. Now I'm going to say that that plays out in two ways. In a corporate way and an individual way. In a way that involves belonging to the church community and His people and in a way that involves your individual life with Him. Okay, I'm going to say a couple short things about that and that's how we'll end. First, the corporate way. There's a pastor named Will Williman. He tells a story about this woman at his church and they're from the South so I'm going to try to do my... Alright, sorry. <laughs> Anytime I try to do accents, Susan starts going, oh no, because she knows me. <laughs> so this woman at his church uh, was going through a divorce. And so she disappeared for, you know, about a month and a half. And then she showed up again at church. Alright, her name was Sally, and so Pastor Williman went up to Sally and said, Sally, I'm so glad to see you here back at church. Welcome back. But I'd like to know, what, what brought you back here to church? And Sally says, well... Uh, Pastor, I was buying groceries and I ran into Peggy. Peggy's the choir director. And Peggy said, Hey, where the heck have you been the last four Sundays? I'm going to kick you out of the choir. You don't get back in there. And Sally said, Well, I just haven't felt comfortable being in church. And Peggy says, Where the heck did you get the notion that we wanted you to be comfortable? And Sally said, Well, you know, I just haven't gone through my separation. I, I know how church people look down on people who go through divorce. And Peggy said, Oh, really? Hey, you know, I'm divorced. And Sally said, Oh, really? I, I didn't know that. I, I. And Peggy said, You know why you don't know that? Because you've been so consumed with your own stuff that you haven't had the time to ask about anyone else's stuff. Yeah, I went through a divorce. My husband left me seven years ago. And then she said, Hey, you know what? I'll see you in church on Sunday. And remember, you're nobody special, okay? <laughs> I love that. And Pastor Williman says, that's, that's exactly right. You know, because our attitude in our society is that, you know, oh, I, gotta find, I want to find a church that works for me. I want to find a faith that works for me. I want to find a community that works for me. And there is something to that. But, but you know, you think back on the times when somebody in your life when you're just hanging on to your faith by a thread and some Christian comes along and just says just the right words and sometimes those words hurt you sometimes they pierce you sometimes they're not exactly what you wanted to hear but they're exactly what you needed to hear right we need one another and that's part of the way that God disciplines our love 
is that we learn from the discipline of one another. We're reminded by the things that are said and modeled by one another. We need each other. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said that Christianity is a social religion. And what he meant by that is that if you try to take our faith and you turn it into a solitary thing, you're going to destroy it. We need one another to discipline and to challenge us. And sometimes, frankly, you need this church to exercise discipline on you. I know I do. The times when some of you have called me out on stuff have uh, have been like food to me. I've needed that times and some of you said, Paul, you're just doing too much. Paul, you, 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 you say too much about yourself. We don't want to know. That's too much information. The times when, when you guys have um, noticed that, that I'm going wrong, you guys have set me right again and again. I wouldn't be here today if not for that. And you know, what, what John Wesley believed was that you could take everyday people, people like you, people like the person next to you, you know, working people, even scumbags. And if you put them in a group of other people who want to love God and pursue God together, you turn those everyday people into saints. And indeed, that's, that's what happened. That was the start of, of Methodism. Um, in, a, in a few minutes here, when we do announcements, you're going to hear that we're starting, restarting small groups. Okay, it's a new semester. We're going to invite people to join small groups. I'm going to say this. It doesn't apply to very many of you in here, actually. But if you're not part of a small group right now... No, let me say this. Those of you who are in small groups, I have seen how it has affected your life. There's some of you guys that I've known for years, and I don't know what's going on with you. I know you know all the stuff we preach about. But it's not until you got into a small group, not until you hung out every week or every other week with other Christians, you talked through the Word, you made commitments to them, you had somebody ask you, how are things going? What about that thing you asked us to pray about last week? That all this stuff came alive. And some of you guys, I only see you here on Sundays. Maybe you have a small group somewhere else. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that if you don't have a place where that happens, you need it. Okay? So if you haven't signed up for small groups, I challenge you to do so and to commit to them. Alright? But the other side of this, I'm going to close with this goes like this. You need other people, but in the end, your love relationship with God, your passion and commitment with God must be a matter of your own individual, personal relationship with Him. At a certain point, you can't just depend on other people. You must have your own relationship with God. Okay? Now, there's lots of stuff I could say about this. In fact, I feel like we basically talk about this all the time, about how you can have a stronger relationship with God. So, I'm not going to actually give you any more tips, things to do, anything like that. Okay? So, I think a lot of you already know. And if you need discipline in your life, you know what the disciplines are. Okay? Instead, I'm going to challenge you to think about the choices that you make that allow for those disciplines to happen. All right? Henry Nouwen says this. Read it with me. Not out loud. You can just read it in your head. I'll read it out loud for you. In the spiritual life, the word discipline means the effort to create some space in which God can act. Let me say that again. The effort to create some space in which God can act. 
Discipline means to prevent everything in your life from being filled up. Discipline means that, means that somewhere you're not occupied and certainly not preoccupied. In the spiritual life, discipline means to create that space in which something can happen that you hadn't planned or counted on. When you read Exodus, you're going to go through chapter after chapter of descriptions of the temple. It is like one of the boringest parts of the Bible. Okay? Because it tells, God tells them this many cubits of this gold framing for this thing. It's only interesting to Ben and Shane who build furniture. The rest of us are like, who cares, alright? What you got to understand is the reason that's there is that God is telling His people, establish a space. Every week, go there. Do nothing else. Sit in there and wait. What, do you want us to play some music? Okay, but only what I tell you to. Should we bring books to read? No, no, no. Don't worry about it. Can we do work? No, no, no work. Just come there on the Sabbath and sit there. Why? Because I want that space for me to 